So how boring going back to accounting after uh, these two uh, presentations. Um, so I find it boring too. Um, and uh, uh, this is why I try to look at accounting rhetoric and art of memory. Um, one of the things that I, that I do and that I got uh, interested uh, recently is to understand how accounting books, accounting texts, uh, and in particular late uh, medieval and early modern accounting books as objects uh, contributed to the diffusion and uh, uh, success of uh, accounting as a practice. And in, uh, in preparing this paper that then was published in Accounting Organizations and Society in 2009, I came across uh, uh, this picture in a book by Mary Carruthers, who is a professor of literature at uh, New York University. And uh, this is um, a, a map of a medieval uh, church where basically, uh, you know, when, when you enter the church and you want to uh, find God, uh, this map tells you uh, what you have to do. So what you have to do is to go into uh, one small space there and do certain things like, for instance, praising an image or saying a prayer. Then you go back to the center of the nave uh, and you do other things. For instance, if, you, if it happens to you that you go to, the, uh, to Rome and you go to the uh, Chiesa del Gesù, which is the main church of the Jesuits, uh, in, um, in, in the world, and it is in Rome, uh, try to stand down the dome of this, uh, of, this, uh, of this church. And so you stay like that, which is a quite uncomfortable uh, position, but because you look up and there are some frescoes there, you are uh, brought up to uh, God, so you almost faint. You, you see, you, 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 you feel your body uh, being uh, uh, taken up to, uh, to God. I've done it, and it is a quite nice uh, experience. Uh, so, uh, so you go to the center of the Navy, then you go to other spaces, then you confess your sins, and at the end of this, uh, of this uh, liturgy, uh, you get an illumination, a vision of, uh, of God. Um, guess how this vision was called in, uh, in medieval uh, Italian? It was called a theoria. Okay, so this is already quite interesting. I'll come back to this in a, in, in a few in a few slides. I think that this was not a, a casual encounter. I mean, I was interested in text, but uh, this uh, the, the encounter with this uh, picture was not casual at all, because at that time the church worked as a text, worked as a book. Uh, so people were illiterate, and therefore, uh, if you want to convert them into believers, you have to make them read spaces rather than reading. Uh, rather than reading books because they could not read books. So there is an interesting relationship here between uh, uh, reading a space and reading a book, and there is a very interesting uh, area of, of history, the history of the book, that uh, looks at these uh, relationships uh, exactly through rhetoric and, uh, and art of memory. And what I've, I've done is to make a further step, and this is what I want to share with you today, which is uh, relationships be between space, book, accounting, and in the end, uh, rationality or economic rationality. Uh, also because, uh, so here the text is read as a, as a or, or can be read as an image. I mean, the, there are these two, these two things are interchangeable to some extent. But also, um, if we look at some, uh, 
uh, accounting textbooks like uh, this one by Pietra in Angelo Pietra, who is a Benedictine in 1589, he said uh, that numbers are figures. I mean, in Italian, we have this, uh, uh, we, don't, we no longer call uh, numbers figures anymore. In English, you do, but you have lost the, uh, the, uh, the idea that Pietra had, that basically numbers are pictures, and you can read numbers uh, as, uh, as pictures. Uh, I'll come back to this point later. Uh, because, in a sense, uh, uh, doing calculations and doing uh, economic calculations does involve uh, pictures, does, does involve spaces, in particular accounts. Uh, I always make this example. If you have seen the Da Vinci Code, uh, the film, uh, which is not a great film, but there's one scene which is interesting, uh, where uh, Tom Hanks tries to uh, crack the code, and so doing calculations, by moving images in... Uh, uh, in the Last Supper, in the, in the fresco. This is a typical medieval thing, where calculations were done by moving things around. And so this is one of the things that I would like to explore with you uh, today. Um, here, in, in this uh, picture, we, we could be uh, led by the idea that it was all about visual. I mean, you have to praise pictures in, uh, in, uh, in one chapel, you have to do, you have to look up at the, at the fresco and so forth and so on. But in, in fact, at that time, the, the experience was uh, much more bodily. Uh, so this was away from the tyranny of the uh, of the eye, uh, both in terms of uh, reading text and in uh, in uh, in uh, praising uh, sacred images. For instance, uh, I don't know whether you know why when uh, we read a book we do like this. Do you know? No. Okay. Uh, we may think that we do this because it helps us to flip the page, right? But in fact, this is not the, uh, the origin of this, uh, of this practice. In medieval times, there were manuscripts, and there were few of them. And they were in Oxford, Paris, Bologna. So if I'm from you know, Palermo, I have to get a horse, you know, go into Bologna, change the horse in Reggio Calabria, then in Naples, then in Rome. The, uh, and so if I go to Bologna and read the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the book, uh, paper was costly. And so I need to develop some techniques and practices to remember what I read and to make sure that I remember that well. One of the techniques was to put perfume on the pages. And so when you read, you were tasting the book. This is why in the name of the rose, the, uh, the, uh, the monk dies, because it was sure that a person at that time in reading was uh, experiencing the text bodily through taste. Uh, the same thing happens for the praise of icons. Uh, here in Stanford, there is a very, uh, a very good art historian, Bissira Pancheva, and uh, she did a, uh, an experiment of uh, recreating the liturgy or the liturgical experience of praising an icon in the uh, Basil of San Marco in, uh, in Venice. And basically, the icons that nowadays we believe, like brands, that they are all about visual things, uh, at that time they were not. So one of the of the, of the practice that they needed to do was to light a candle and to do certain movements with the body in front of the, of the light. Depending on the, on the movement or, or, or on how your body was, uh, was, uh, was enacting this icon, the icon changed its shape. So what uh, nowadays we believe is something that appeals our eye, at that time, in fact, was uh, uh, something that uh, involved uh, a, the body as a, as a full experience. So the, the point is, when did the visual become so cool? This is what uh, Steve Vulgar uh, asked us to reflect upon at a conference in Oxford uh, two weeks ago, where I 
uh, close the, uh, the, the, the uh, I mean, I made some uh, final remarks at the, at the end. Uh, and I think that it became cool, uh, and this is a, a brutal simplification, so if there are historians in the room, please apologies for, uh, for that. But I do this more theoretically rather than uh, necessarily historically. But in, uh, in uh, uh, 1600 uh, Paris, there was, a, there was a guy who was a professor of uh, logic, uh, Peter Ramos, and he had problems like I have with my MBAs nowadays in making what I teach um, uh, understand, understandable to the, to the students. He was a teacher of, of logic, of Aristotelian logic, and he found very difficult to translate uh, Aristotelian logic into, into something that the students could engage and could be engaged uh, to, uh, or could, could be engaged by. And so what he did was to uh, graphically uh, design Aristotelian logic in, uh, in, uh, in a graphical representation. Graphical representation that involved analysis um, and involved uh, breaking things down into hierarchies. And hierarchy is also an interesting word because it has got a religious origin. Uh, hieros means priest or uh, uh, sacred and arche means a rule. So an hierarchy is a sacred rule. And here we have a representation of an, uh, of a, of an accounting uh, textbook uh, by an English guy, uh, Thomas Brown. Um, this is actually 17th uh, century, but I've got some examples later on of earlier uh, textbooks. And uh, the, the, the manual is a big uh, manual, at Christchurch we have a copy, and, uh, and uh, it's all about entries. So you open the first page and you have a, 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 you have a series of entries there. there. There is only one page one folio at the, in the middle of, uh, of, the, uh, of the book with some text. And then this representation. And what the, uh, what the guy uh, says or said was, look, if you understand this representation, this is a simplification of uh, how accounting can be, uh, can, be, can be practiced, you don't need to do anything else. I mean, you, you, you just have this clear in your mind, and then you can understand all the entries that I have exemplified for you in, uh, in the book. There is nothing else. The visual uh, does it all. So in a, in a sense here, uh, with Ramism in general, we witness the, uh, the, the mushrooming of uh, how to do books. I mean, books that are to be, uh, to be practiced, as I mentioned in the, in the paper published in, in, um, in, uh, in AOS. Uh, so from cookery to military, passing through the art of memory and, and accounting. So how to become an accountant, and you have a manual. And a manual that uh, shares with other manuals this attention to analysis and to dichotomies or to a dichotomical uh, representation of uh, what the practice meant. And of course, art of memory and rhetoric were a big part of uh, this. I think that in, the, in this is, for instance, uh, these are, are the two representations in, in the book by Pietra, 1589. Uh, so uh, what these uh, uh, dichotomizations uh, did was to prompt a process of simplification for greater engagement uh, of, the, uh, of the audience. And this led the way to uh, the commodification of knowledge to some extent and how I mean, there is, for instance, authors like uh, Eisenstein who possibly take this uh, too seriously, but in a sense, with the uh, massification of production of books, you, you also have to sell them, and so you have to make them more uh, appealing to the, uh, to the reader. This is part of that, uh, of that process. And um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, as you can see here, it's all about dividing things in, in two, and division, which is at the core of uh, calculating practices, is a very visual uh, thing. It's made of two words, de and vision. And vision comes from videre, that means to see. And uh, de uh, is to be about. Um, 
so the hierarchia, for instance, but also this, which means two. Uh, so if you want to see things better, you split them in two. So you use analysis and then you split the, the, the uh, I mean, you organize your analysis in, uh, in dichotomies. This uh, has got some ancient origins with uh, 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 Aristotle, of course, but it became something very commodified and very uh, successful in, uh, in that uh, period between late medieval and early modern uh, science. And accounting is all made of dichotomies. It's made of profit and losses, it's made of assets and liabilities, it's made of uh, long-term uh, liabilities, short-term liabilities. So we do divisions in this way, we do divisions in this way. When you do financial statement analysis, you have hierarchies, which is all making analysis in, uh, uh, in a hierarchical way through divisions and through dichotomies. So accounting is intrinsically a practice that relates to uh, rhetoric and art of memory, as uh, I will show in uh, in, a sense, in a in a minute. So the, there is a lot of as in uh, in the presentation that we we, we saw uh, before. I cannot see Karen. Uh, I don't know where she. Oh, okay. Uh, so there is a, a, a there is as in in Karen's presentation a lot of effort in making uh, these things appealing and in in, uh, in engaging or making the 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 user attached to the text or to the practice in order that it can happen. It can be successful. For me, success uh, shares a lot with the Latin uh, root of the words that means to happen. To succeed means to happen. And of course, I mean, uh, if something succeeds, for me, something that is replicated, replicated, and in this process of replication, you also have a process of uh, uh, difference, of creating of uh, difference and diversity, in a sense, similar to the idea of uh, overflowing that we were um, uh, listening to uh, before. So engagement is a key aim, if you like, or a key uh, result of this uh, dichotomical uh, representation, but also immateriality. And here I have, um, uh, oh, before, before that there is something else that I want to do uh, with that, but keep the immateriality in, uh, in mind. So of course to, to make sure that the visual engages, you do need some kind of training conventions. What do I mean by that? Mary Carruthers makes this difference that I find quite useful for understanding uh, management uh, practices, but society in general, I would say. The difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxis. So with orthodoxy, the truth is in the text. So for instance, at Oxford we say, or they say now, uh, I'm still at Christchurch though, so I can say we say. Um, uh, we say that uh, you know, the stu a student reads economics and management, or reads um, geography, I don't know where Andrew is. Uh, it reads uh, physics, why? Because this is a medieval remnant, that a person goes to the library, the truth is, is in the text, and therefore you read the truth. But there is another way of achieving truth, which is through practice. And so uh, the, the, the example of the, of the church that we see there, this vision of God, this theoria, cannot happen uh, unless we are uh, trained through uh, uh, specific training regimes that uh, explain us how to read and enact these images in the church. And this made me reflect. When I saw this image, I thought, ha ha, this is quite interesting, because what do students do in a PhD in accounting or finance? Uh, they go to a class and they take uh, a course in maths. They, and they go to another class and they take another course in stats. Then they go to another class and they uh, take 
take a course in microeconomics. Then they go to the supervisor, if they are PhDs, and they, commit, uh, they, they confess their sins. And they, you know, they say, you know, master, for a moment yesterday I thought that uh, the human being is not rational. Oh, say a prayer, go back to your, uh, to your Bible and... Uh, and read, uh, and read that economic men are actually men, eh? economic men are rational, okay? So don't do this anymore. So at the end of your PhD, you do have a finance uh, theory. So you believe in Black and Scholes and you think that these things uh, actually are truth. I think that medieval people were smarter than finance professors, but a PhD in, uh, in finance has lost uh, some of the aspect that, uh, that some of the immaterial bodily aspect that I will uh, uh, refer to in a moment. Uh, and so the work of purification led them with this uh, mystical belief in truth, uh, which actually medieval people were quite skeptical uh, about. Uh, and this is why uh, uh, they realized or they made practices that were quite immaterial. Uh, I mean, uh, in another book that I encountered in, uh, in this uh, learning experience of writing this paper on, uh, on accounting books, uh, a book written by Lina Bolzoni, who is another professor of, uh, of uh, literature, Italian literature at the Normal of Pisa, um, she uh, illustrates how there are different kinds of rhetorical machines which are uh, instruments to order the world. Uh, hierarchy is one of those, so trees. Uh, but another one is the will, uh, which is a quite interesting thing. So uh, let's assume that I have to give a speech, like today. Uh, normally I don't use notes because I'm quite interested in, uh, in, uh, in these things. So I do these things also for my own practice. And let's assume that I have to talk about love. Okay, and I have to remember how to organize my speech. What do I do? I take a piece of paper and I write love in a round circle on a piece of paper. Then the next thing that I do is to create an inventory of cards. So, one, and I number them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, up to N. And then on each card, I write what I believe defines love, affect, passion, peace, respect, care, devotion, desire, loyalty. If I were Berlusconi, I would put bunga bunga or other things there. Uh, but um, you, know, you know, there are also nice Italian people around, okay? Uh, so, and then what, I, what do I do? I place these cards around the circle, around love, okay? In this movement of placing the cards, I'm defining what love is. So love is quite a fluid uh, thing. Uh, I'll come back to this point in a, in a moment. And also, this numbering of the cards uh, gives me a, a route in my speech to understand what I have to talk about first. I have to talk about first about affect, then about passion, then about peace, then about respect. Uh, what happens if in the Q&A uh, session I get an un a question that I cannot answer with affect, passion, peace, and respect? I go back to my inventory. And I take one card out and I search for a card or I create a card that helps me to uh, answer the questions. And in this movement, again, I'm making, I'm redefining love. So while love before was affected by passion, peace, passion, peace, and respect, now it's desire, passion, peace, and respect. So these techniques, this inventory are 
quite interesting things because they are uh, at least a catalogue of uh, possible features of traits of uh, uh, of uh, of uh, vision or um, five minutes. Yeah, it would be okay. Um, of uh, what is at the uh, at the centre. But interestingly enough, there was a a, a book by a Jesuit uh, published in 1636 uh, where uh, he organised the entire book uh, according to rhetorical uh, canons. I mean, no one so far has ever thought that inventory comes from inventio, which is the first canon of rhetoric. The second part of that book is organized, uh, uh, is, is, is named uh, dell'ordinazione and disposizione dei conti, which means of the ordering and dispositions of the account, which is the second canon of rhetoric. So it's the ordinatio and dispositio. And the third one is of the style on how to communicate the, the, <clears throat> the accounts in uh, in, uh, uh, when you have to, when you have to uh, publish the reports, which is the third canon of rhetoric. And this uh, helps us to go back to this idea that uh, calculations are made with spaces. So you, you create some spaces, which are accounts, and this is the inventory. Then you do uh, calculations when you reorder, reorganize these, uh, these spaces in a way that uh, helps you to find a solution to the uh, calculative problem that you, that you had. So there is a, a strong link and, and an historical also link between the emergence and the, the development of accounting and some uh, humanist practice like rhetoric and art of memory. And so in a sense what I, I argue in, uh, in that paper and today is that rationality is much more about uh, humanities than science. In, in fact, when, when in medieval times uh, people talked about the Libro della Ragione, the book of reason, they didn't talk about the book of uh, intelligence. They talk about the ledger. Ragione was account. Ratio means account. It's a space. So rationality is something that is intrinsically a visual or a special practice. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, one of the most successful uh, uh, management practice, the balance scorecard, is a rhetorical will. I mean, I was at a conference uh, two years ago, there were three invited speakers, I was the second one. The third one was um, uh, Kaplan, the author of the balance scorecard. Uh, to give a speech, he earned something like 50,000, to give the speech about this, um, he earned 50,000 uh, euros. Um, uh, I didn't, uh, I mean, my, my, my fee was much, much lower. I got only 1,000, okay? So that was the difference. It, it was like in a concert where you have the star and, and then the other groups before playing to, for, for the big star coming at the end. I was one of those uh, playing before the big star. But if you look at the balance scorecard, you have the vision and strategy at the center, and then this is defined uh, by placing around some cards, uh, financial perspective, customer perspective, processes, learning and growth. And then for each of those, you define the uh, KPI that, uh, that, uh, that define what means to satisfy the customers, what means to have efficient processes, what means to achieve learning and growth. So this, is, this, this works exactly as a, as a rhetorical will, because you will never find two balance scorecards implemented in the same way into different organizations. And uh, depending on how you put the cards around the, the center, vision, strategy, these things change. So they are really immaterial and they are really, uh, they are really something uh, floppy and, uh, I mean, uh, and, and fuzzy in a sense, okay? So, uh, but you know, uh, they, they make money out of this. So what can we learn about this? Can I have one minute, two minutes maybe? Uh, I think that there are four things that we can learn before I go through the 
through this uh, slide. The, the first thing is uh, all these practices have a strong visual appeal. I mean, the only thing that remains constant in the balance scorecard when you see it implemented in different organizations is this circle at the center and these four things around it. What is inside those things uh, always changes. And why is that? Because the balance scorecard, as much as the uh, spiritual exercises in the Society of Jesus, uh, uh, it doesn't tell you uh, what this vision is. It doesn't tell you what the financial means. It doesn't tell you what customer means. Like in the spiritual exercises, if you, if you read the book of the spiritual exercises of the Jesuits, it, it, it's a book about finding God, but it, it doesn't tell you what God is. It tells you how to find it. And here, it happens the same. It doesn't tell you what the right strategy or vision is, but it offers you a way to figuring it out. And figuring it out is another uh, word that remembers us the, the importance of uh, rhetorical visualizations in, uh, in, this, uh, in this process. Then, therefore, the, this successful uh, meaning that they happen and they sell a lot, uh, practice are methods of ordering, and they are also means of mediations and uh, of mediations because when you have to define what uh, the vision means, you have to mediate uh, amongst your peers in the organizations, but also you have to mediate this practice with other non-human actors like enterprise resource planning systems and information technology in uh, in general. And then the other thing, which I think is the uh, important one and, uh, and refers to the dramaturgy or the embodiment of the space in Randy's uh, presentation is that these things are performable space. So they offer a space for performance. They offer a space for dramaturgy. They offer a space for uh, a scenario, a theater, as, uh, as the, the other two excellent speakers who preceded me uh, said. Um, so for uh, items which, again, I now, every paper that I publish, there is a rhetorical will there. So I put something at the center and, and, uh, and four things around in the hope that I can be paid $50,000 uh, one day uh, for, a, for a speech, but this doesn't happen. Uh, so um, uh, what, what can we learn from this? We can learn the four things that I said before, but also that uh, graphical representation achieve clarity at the expense of context. So in a sense, they are so partial and simplified that they contain very little truth, uh, but what they do and what they are important for is that they help us to do something with these signs. I mean, as we said yesterday, inscriptions are not the world. They represent it uh, in its absence. So what is interesting about inscriptions is to understand how we mobilize them, how we use them, rather than how they represent. They do not represent anything. Visions, these things, love, they are immaterial. They, they, what is more important is, is the actions that you put around these things. Uh, then the other important thing, and I think that this is uh, important for the theme of, of, of this panel, is that they create a, a formal schematic or in the, in, the, in, the, in the work of purification from medieval times to postmodern times. Uh, uh, they, they, they create a, a, a formal schematic or special or formulaic vo worldview uh, for which what is useful and just is only what is quantifiable, what is visible, what is organizable. Um, all the rest is, you know, uh, irrational. One of the, of, the, of the participants yesterday said that one of the things that we haven't discussed here in this conference is the relationship between the uh, quantitative and the qualitative. The medieval people had this relationship quite clear. Numbers are figures. Now, now we don't have this anymore. So numbers are numbers, okay? Figures, who cares about those? Um, 
and uh, the other thing is that they mean something um, only if their experiences are as orthopraxis, as uh, praxis that require a kind of uh, liturgy. And finance, I'm sorry for the finance professors uh, in, in the room, is a mystical liturgy where you end up creating visions of truth which are absolutely evanescent and immaterial. So going back to what I said yesterday, the only antidote uh, against this is a need for doubt and critical education. So I'm quite happy to be here because I've experienced a lot of doubt and a lot of uh, critical thinking. So thanks a lot to you all for your attention.